I don't have to tell you this. You know that the world can be a dark place. But have you ever thought about whose job it is to combat that darkness? The people who take some of the riskiest jobs, like hunting child abductors, recovering human remains, or tracking international fugitives. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and in my show Dark Arenas, you'll hear firsthand accounts from people who work in professions that deal with the deviant and defy the dangerous. Each episode of Dark Arenas is going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to investigate the most heinous crimes and most violent criminals in society. You're going to learn about the people who choose these jobs and who stay working in them despite the tolls they take. Enter the darkness of espionage, fugitive hunting, crime scene recreation, and more on Dark Arenas. Listen to Dark Arenas now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight in the bed like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws? Well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatised by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. By the time Detective Jim Curtis confronted Chad Schaefer on the afternoon of April 1st, 2010, it seemed he was finally closing in on the truth. He had three witnesses who'd given him circumstantial evidence linking Schaefer to Dr. Malov's murder. He also had that little sun-shaped keychain that potentially placed Chad at the scene. But he needed more proof. Reasonable doubt is a a very sneaky thing. Sometimes it's freaking easier to move Bob Everest than it is to convince the jury that someone did something wrong. The prosecuting attorneys had a big concern. They feared the exoneration of the defendants in the first investigation would weaken their case for a jury. Trying new defendants would be risky, so the attorneys gave Curtis and his partner instructions. Ultimately, they told us we needed a confession from Chad Schaefer that he participated and witnessed Moselle participate in an assault on Maloff to get the case. Chad Schaefer was a 32-year-old pizza cook with a round face and short black curly hair. He'd agreed to talk with Curtis and his partner, who, unbeknownst to Schaefer, was wearing a wire. During the interview, Schaefer admitted that he was at the rental house in Norwich with his cousin, Moselle Brown, on the night of May 14th, 2004. He told them that he did see Dr. Malov there and said an argument broke out between Malov and Moselle Brown. That's when Schaefer admitted to hitting Dr. Malov himself. He said he punched him once and then Moselle went crazy, started beating him and beat the shit out of him. 
Schaefer alleged the fight broke out after Dr. Malov used a racial slur. Curtis had heard that before from another witness who Schaefer allegedly had talked to after the murder. Despite that, Curtis believed this was just a cover story. And you go back to a character assessment or victimology, the chances of, of you using uh, racial epithets goes dramatically lower with a higher level of education. And he's got the highest level of education. So we were prepared for that. Though Curtis didn't buy or didn't want to buy Schaefer's story, the truth was he couldn't know for sure. But he got the response he wanted. The minute he said that, we kind of turned it around on him. So we convinced him that it wasn't said, not because we say so and don't believe him, it's because we showed him that based on our investigation, that a man like Dr. Malloc, he's not gonna just use that language. And so, so he had nowhere to go with it. You know, he couldn't refute that. Or he could, could have yeah. tried, but we weren't gonna let him. And, and we were in control of the interview at this point. And he knew what he had to say. Schaefer went on. He said after he punched Dr. Malov, he ran back to the car but Moselle Brown continued to fight with him. When his cousin came to the car, they eventually drove back to Schaefer's apartment and asked his girlfriend, Candace Foster, for help. Candace returned to the house with them, where they found Dr. Malov on the ground, still breathing. Schaefer said he tried to help Malov, but Moselle Brown began to hit and kick Malov until he stopped breathing. Schaefer blamed his cousin for most of the violence. Curtis didn't buy it though, because witnesses alleged that they saw blood on Schaefer's clothes. Curtis pressed Schaefer to admit that. Hey, you have blood in your clothing, just one punch, but shows that he participated more heavily in the crime. So, so, so we got him to say he had blood on his clothing. And finally, Curtis had what he needed. All we need is the assault, because we know the, the end results of the assault was the manslaughter and the murder. When they finished the interview, Schaefer provided a written statement. He maintained that he struck Dr. Malov and his cousin, Moselle Brown, carried out the rest of the violence. Police arrested Schaefer that day. Now, his confession just had to hold up in court. But that's where the detective work would once again come under fire. From Q Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner. And this is Crime Waves Cold Truth. This is episode eight, the final episode, Flying Pigs and Starry Skies. Six years after the brutal murder of former Coast to Coast guest and cold fusion scientist Eugene Malov, Norwich City Police arrested a man and a woman and charged them each with murder. By April 2nd, 2010, Chad Schaefer's arrest had made the news. He was charged with felony murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and third-degree robbery. 
His ex-girlfriend, Candace Foster, had also been arrested and charged as an accessory to felony murder. Even though Schaefer placed most of the blame on Moselle Brown, he wouldn't be charged in connection with the murder for another three and a half years. Brown was already in prison, serving time for federal drugs and weapons charges from 2008. Two years passed before Schaefer would finally go to trial. The Norwich Superior Courthouse is a red brick building situated on a corner downtown. Its round facade looks out on a row of historic storefronts near the Chetucket River. On April 9th, 2012, Chad Schaefer arrived in the courtroom wearing a dark suit jacket, a blue button-down shirt, and a tie. Behind him sat the 12-member jury who could send him to prison for up to 60 years if they chose to convict. Prosecutors spent the first day setting the scene of the night Dr. Malov was murdered. They projected crime scene photos of his body in the driveway and played the initial 911 call. I was coming here to look at an apartment and there's someone laying on the ground. He's not moving and he looks like dead. It took several days for prosecutors to lay out their case. The jury heard testimony from state police who explained how they had incorrectly suspected two totally different people, Joseph Riley and Gary McAvoy. The arrests were made basically with these two jailhouse informants and not a lot of other witnesses to corroborate. We decided the best course of action would be to start from square one. They heard testimony from witnesses who were living with Schaefer and Candace Foster when Dr. Malov had been killed. Candace was whispering and talking fast and nervous. She was out of breath. She said, Chad beat up the landlord. The police were here. Schaefer said the gentleman called him a racial slur and beat the out of him. The witnesses testified that they'd seen the bloody Denver Nuggets basketball jersey that Schaefer allegedly wore during the attack. One witness said he instructed Schaefer to get rid of items stolen from Dr. Malov and watched Schaefer burn them months later. And both witnesses said that they had watched Moselle Brown reenact the fight while Schaefer smirked. He was throwing punches with his right hand in the air and kicking the ground. He was hyped up and happy. He had a big smile on his face. But that wasn't all the prosecutors had for the jury. On April 18th, 2012, more spectators than usual packed into the courtroom. They were there to hear testimony from the state's star witness. The four foot 11 redhead in shackles was hardly visible on the witness stand. Candace Foster was the state's only witness who could put Schaefer at the crime scene. In a soft-spoken voice, she testified about how she ended up at the crime scene on May 14th, 2004. She said Schaefer and Moselle Brown needed her help to make the crime scene look like a robbery. When they arrived at the house in Norwich, Dr. Malov was lying face down in the driveway. So Schaefer and Brown flipped him over onto his back and removed his wallet and shoes. But Malov was still alive. 
The prosecutor asked. Was he saying anything? Foster replied. Help me. Didn't you? Foster stared at the floor. No. Foster avoided looking at her ex as she testified. He told Foster that she had to take part in the crime so that she couldn't tell on them because she would be guilty too. She went on saying that Schaefer hit her in the face. Foster said her busted nose bled as she struck Malov in the head with a pipe and kicked him more than once. Then Schaefer and Brown made her dump Malov's van in a casino parking lot. When she got home, she tried to bleach out the blood from Schaefer's Denver Nuggets jersey. She remembered police coming to the apartment to ask about where Schaefer had been, and she lied to them. Later, they burned the stuff they'd stolen from Dr. Malov in a fire pit. When she finished, the courtroom fell silent. But they hadn't yet heard the defense attorney's cross-examination. Bruce McIntyre was a balding man with a horseshoe mustache. McIntyre had a unique background for a defense lawyer. Before becoming an attorney, he worked in law enforcement for 20 years. McIntyre questioned Foster's credibility when he asked police what they promised Foster in exchange for her cooperation. He wanted the jury to know that police had placed Foster in witness protection in hopes that she would tell them what happened. That she and her children with Schaefer lived in a hotel on the state's dollar for the first four months, received $100 a week for food, and later moved into an apartment where the state paid more than half of her rent. In fact, the state had placed all of the eyewitnesses at trial in witness protection. While Foster sat on the stand, McIntyre questioned her memory problems, her drug use, and her learning disabilities. The cross-examination grew more intense when he questioned her honesty with investigators. He asked Foster, did you lie to police the first time you met with them? Did you continue to lie to them? How often exactly did you lie to them? Under pressure, Foster burst into tears on the stand, admitting she lied to police as many as 30 times during the investigation. McIntyre had made his point, and the defense portion of the trial hadn't even begun yet. He was prepared to continue tearing down the state's key witness with testimony that the state tried and failed to have withheld from trial. Witnesses who would reveal that Candace had a long history of lying. He was prepared to discuss how the state built its case on circumstantial evidence. Where was the physical evidence linking Schaefer to the crime scene? Schaefer's keys found at the scene didn't necessarily put him there that night. Investigators had gone to great lengths to identify a mesh-like fabric pattern found on Malov's bloodied clothing that was suspected to have been transferred from Schaefer's Denver Nuggets jersey. Curtis got a variety of jersey fabric samples from Reebok and sent them to the FBI for examination. However, the samples didn't match. 
Investigators had also found unknown DNA at the scene. But after it was all analyzed, none of it matched Schaefer, Brown, or Foster. So whose DNA did investigators find at the crime scene that night? But that wasn't the biggest element of McIntyre's defense. He was prepared to discredit the police tactics used to get Schaefer's confession. The jury had already seen a hint of this during the cross-examination of Detective Curtis's partner who got the confession from Schaefer. He asked the sergeant, Do you sometimes offer half-truths to see what kind of reaction you'll get? The sergeant replied, I've used a lie to elicit a response. Before the trial, McIntyre tried to have the confession thrown out, but the judge rejected it. So at the next hearing, McIntyre was planning to attack the prosecution's smoking gun, Schaefer's confession that was secretly taped by the Norwich police. McIntyre would argue that investigators led Chad Schaefer to the information they wanted him to say. That the confession was a police construction that they coaxed out of him under pressure. The police had gained the confession under false assurances that Schaefer would be able to see his children. McIntyre was planning to call on experts who would testify to the fact that questionable police interrogation tactics are used, that this kind of thing does happen. But as it turned out, the jury wouldn't get a chance to hear any of that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And during the holiday season, there's a lot happening, gift giving, traveling, staycations, whatever it is, dealing with family, a lot of stresses to manage. And why not get some help doing that? Uh, it's always helped for me over the years. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's online. It's made to be super easy and flexible and you can really fit it into your schedule. So in this season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com CWCT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot CWCT. On April 20th, 2012, a new judge greeted the courtroom with an abrupt change of plans. He would not hear further testimony in the trial. He was there to take a plea from Chad Schaefer. After days of testimony, the state did something unusual. They'd abruptly changed course mid-trial and made Chad Schaefer an offer to plead guilty to lesser charges. Instead of facing 60 years in prison for murder and other charges, he could serve 16 years for first-degree manslaughter and accessory to third-degree robbery. But Chad Schaefer did not like the deal and neither did his defense. Wearing shackles and a tan uniform, he approached the bench. 
The new judge, Patrick J. Clifford, cocked his head and looked at him over his small glasses. Are you sure this is really what you want to do? Schaefer broke down. Through tears, he replied, In all honesty, Your Honor, no. Since his arrest and throughout the court proceedings, Schaefer had maintained he threw one punch at Dr. Malov. He told Judge Clifford that he wrestled with the idea of going to prison for manslaughter. For a crime I believe I did not commit. Schaefer was 34 and had already spent two years in jail. Taking the deal meant getting out by the time he was 50, instead of spending the rest of his life behind bars if a jury convicted him. Schaefer looked toward the courtroom window. I want to be out there again someday. Ultimately, Schaefer decided the deal was the safest thing for him to do after all. Judge Clifford accepted the plea agreement. Certainly doesn't sound like a perfect deal for anyone. Including Dr. Malov's family, who were stunned. Malov's son, Ethan, who had sat through the weeks of testimony, felt incensed. He approached the bench and handed Judge Clifford a photo of his dad. There was Dr. Malov with his bushy beard and glasses, very much alive. Ethan told him the sentence does not fit the crime. The family had tried to persuade the judge to let the jury decide, but Judge Clifford addressed the real problem. If the state was confident of a conviction, the trial would have gone forward. There were obviously some concerns, not, not necessarily the evidence, but the, the whole, the grand picture of things. Assistant State's Attorney Paul Narducci and his team of prosecutors feared that Bruce McIntyre's defense wouldn't bode well for them, particularly the issue of Schaefer's confession. On paper, he had given some inculpatory statements, but if you looked at the interview, they were a little bit more ambiguous, might be argued would see a little bit ambiguous nature, um, and wanted to prevent that defendant from arguing that the police were sort of feeding their theories to Mr. Schaefer. Our thought process was a jury may very well come back and return a, a, a verdict of not guilty or might hang, uh, which would mean we'd have to retry it all over again. A plea deal was the only way to avoid the potential for either of these outcomes. Though Schaefer was now in prison, the fate of the other two murder suspects, Foster and Brown, hung in the balance. Two and a half years after Chad Schaefer was sentenced, it was Moselle Brown's turn. This trial would be decidedly less complicated for the state than Schaefer's. But it still wasn't an open and shut case for the jury. They deliberated for 15 hours over days before finally reaching a verdict. Guilty. He was ultimately sentenced to 58 years in prison. It was bittersweet in that no matter what we do, it's a rough sort of justice in that we can never bring back somebody. Even if they both got 150 years, I don't know if that's ever going to to satisfy anybody. It's bittersweet for me to see the family grapple with that and not be happy with our original disposition with Mr. Schaefer, but I think they were satisfied, as satisfied as you can be with uh, uh, the, the murder condition. Yeah. Candace Foster's day in court came a few months later on May 27th, 2015. 
She spent almost four years in jail after a year in witness protection. In return for her cooperation and testimony in the Schaefer and Brown trials, she did get a plea deal, a lesser charge of hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. So she was sentenced to time served and five years probation. After 11 long years, after all the false leads, the inconclusive evidence, the questionable forensic science, the case of Dr. Eugene Malov's murder was officially closed. During the trials, another wave of intrigue swelled around Malov's case in the burgeoning underworld online. Eugene Malov killed trying to give the masses free energy. Schaefer, Foster, and Brown, some contend, were involved in suppressing technology that Malov was on the cusp of releasing to the world, keeping an eye on Malov and waiting for some kind of kill signal from the powers that be. They might even have been under some kind of mind control that made them think they were acting on their own impulses. I do think that what he was doing was pushing on an envelope that most people would rather leave alone. And he had done it successfully for a long time. Rick Broussard, Malov's skeptical friend who worked for New Hampshire Magazine, is more open-minded to the unknown than he was when he first started hanging around Malov's basement in the 90s. Broussard still sits on the board of Malov's New Energy Foundation and is one of the only original members remaining. These days, he doesn't roll his eyes as much at his fellow board members out there ideas. I remember thinking, God, they're all nuts. You know? And that was before a lot has happened in the fields that I used to think were very flaky and ridiculous. And now I don't know anymore. I now look back on them and go, well, these guys were ahead of the game. So apparently being a loopy scientist doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, you're wrong. It just means maybe you're a, a loop or two ahead of everybody else. Broussard does not think Malov was killed by Big Oil or that he was even on Big Oil's radar. But he heard all about the conspiracy theories and he does wonder sometimes if there's something sinister keeping the world from advancing in free energy. If there was a conspiracy behind Malov's murder, he wouldn't be too hard to convince. I'm sure that when powerful organizations have people killed or eliminated, they don't do it in, in easily traceable ways. They probably figure out what are the ways that this person might die and let's make one of those happen. And how they go about doing that, you know, it's like three or four layers of separation from the actual event. So I, I don't write anything off in terms of that, especially not when you're talking about things like this, which seem to be at the heart of some great problem in the world. But maybe conspiracy theories are just how some people try to make sense of violent incidents that are hard to wrap their minds around. Maybe it's easier to turn Malov into a martyr than face the ugly truth about human behavior. You like to think that there'd be something more romantic to the death of a great person. He knew the world was a crazy place, a dangerous place, and seemingly a self-destructive place. I like to think that even then, he was factoring that into his, his ultimate equation about the way things are and why they are that way. 
As of 2023, Chad Schaefer has been in prison for 10 years. In July, at a medium security men's prison in Northern Connecticut, Schaefer sat nervously at a small wooden desk across from a camera. Sir, please state your name and inmate number for the record. Uh, my name is Chad Schaefer. Uh, my inmate number is 278043. Schaefer was up for parole. Watching on the other side of a video call were members of the parole board, as well as Malov's children, Ethan and Kim. Malov's wife, Joanne, had passed away in 2020. First off, I'd like to say a good afternoon and thank you for your time today. Schaefer began by reading a letter. Today, I would like to say that I'm sorry for my actions have caused heartache, pain to the victims and all parties involved. My actions have created a great void that cannot be filled. I understand that I will not be forgiven, but I want a chance to be heard and understood that I am not the man that stood in front of you 13 years ago. As the parole board and Malov's children listened, Schaefer detailed the work he'd done while in prison, how he'd taken classes to learn conflict resolution, how he managed having multiple jobs at once, and how he gained a deeper understanding of how his actions had affected both his own children and Dr. Malov's children. The programs that I have taken have opened my eyes to the other side of violence. Spoke for nearly eight minutes before closing out his letter. I apologize to you again for the ongoing pain and trauma that has caused you all over the years and can pray that one day that you can forgive me for what was done to you and your families. The parole board commended Schaefer for the work he'd done to rehabilitate himself. But there was something crucial they needed to know. Did Schaefer take responsibility for his actions? He'd have to answer some questions about Dr. Malov's murder. How did this come about? How did he, two of you, decide what it was that was going to transpire? It didn't happen that way, ma'am. That's when the hearing took a strange turn. I stand very firm on the fact that I remain innocent in this situation. And so were you there? No, I was not, ma'am. So how did they connect you to the crime? Someone placed me there. Someone placed him there, and apparently not just him. What about the mother of your children? Was she there? No, she was not there either. The parole board members seemed confused. She asked, then why did Candace Foster say she was with you there? Schaefer said he didn't know. He didn't know why Candace said anything she said during the trial. So how did this man wind up dead? To be honest with you, ma'am, I do not know. I do, I honestly stand here to this day still understanding that. Um, that's very strange, uh, Mr. Schaefer. The parole board didn't know what to make of this development, but it was not the response they were looking for. The woman questioning him sounded exasperated. So do you know that the victims are listening to this whole conversation right now? Yes, I do. And, and how do you think it feels to them that they don't have any closure because we're saying here today that you deny the offense? I understand that they have been very hurt to this whole situation. I acknowledge that to the fullest from day one. I never would want anyone to feel that pain. That's why I said what I said. And I honestly feel that justice should be served. And I don't believe that the justice of what has been served 
is what should have been served. Before the board made their decision, Malov's children, Ethan and Kim, were allowed to speak. Despite all the years since their father's death, their grief and loss had never gone away. My mother lost her beloved husband of 34 years. My sister and I lost our loving father. The energy research community lost a brilliant scientist and gifted communicator. The losses, injuries, and damages just go on and on. And no jail sentence can change what happened to him. But Chad Schaefer needs to fulfill his sentence for taking my dad's life. As soon as Kim was finished, the parole board wasted no time handing down their decision. This crime was Yep. 16 years, in my opinion, is a drop in the bucket in terms of sentence. Chad Schaefer was denied parole. It seems Dr. Malov's murder case is done. For now, at least. But on the cold fusion front, the quest isn't over. It's 1986, Newark and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, no. All right. No, really, what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us wherever you pod. Though Malov is gone, today Cold Fusion advocates still carry the torch. But for Jed Rothwell, Malov's old friend, the promise and peril of Cold Fusion is still a painful memory. On top of knowing that these people had their lives ruined, in some cases their marriages ruined, their careers ruined, I also know that if the scientists had not done this to them, we, we would probably have Cold Fusion automobiles by now. You know, they've held up the progress of what is probably the most important discovery in history. 
and all because of academic politics for the most part. Rothwell runs an online archive of papers about cold fusion, which, by the way, has been rebranded. The field now prefers low energy nuclear reactions or LENR. Perhaps being intimately familiar with the progress the field has made makes it sting a little more. But it's also a sign that the work hasn't been for nothing. The best experiment on record produced tremendous amounts of energy for for weeks and weeks and weeks. The total amount of energy that it produces is millions of times greater than any chemical reaction. Incomparably greater. That's major progress, even compared to hot fusion programs, according to Edmund Storms. The irony is that hot fusion makes an enormous amount of power, but they have never made enough power to offset what is required to make the power. Cold fusion, on the other hand, has no problems making more power than it is required to make the power. And the reason is that hot fusion uses a device that would use most of the room in a football stadium. And cold fusion uses a device that you can put on your kitchen table. Storms is in his 90s now. He lives in Santa Fe, where he spent the last three decades experimenting with cold fusion in his lab slash wood shop. He's published two books and many papers on cold fusion experiments. Researchers have a better grasp of what's happening inside of a cold fusion cell, but it's only slightly less mysterious than it was 30 years ago. If cold fusion could be made practical, there are still big questions that have to be answered. But Storm says the experiments required to answer those questions are not being done. Those experiments are incredibly difficult to do and expensive. And because nobody has any money, they're not done. What people are doing are experiments that have been done over and over again and that are easy to do and are cheap to do, like heat measurement. It's a trivial measurement now, but it doesn't answer any of the critical questions. In other words, researchers have essentially maxed out what they can do with the little funding and equipment they have. But Malov would be happy to know that there may be some hope of a cold fusion revival. In 2019, one of the biggest companies on the planet revealed that it had been secretly conducting its own research into the cold fusion phenomenon. Google. Nature Magazine reported that Google had spent four years and $10 million running new tests to see if nuclear fusion could be achieved at room temperature. Though the tests were unsuccessful, Nature Magazine, once among the leading voices against cold fusion, now called for further research. They wrote, we contend that additional investigation of the relevant conditions is required before the phenomenon can be ruled out entirely. The next year, in 2020, the European Union created two cold fusion funds. Then the US government, decades after dismissing cold fusion, suddenly had new interest in it again. In December, 2022, the Department of Energy 
made international headlines after announcing that scientists for the first time had produced a nuclear fusion reaction that created a net energy gain. And two months later, they assigned $10 million for cold fusion research to quote, determine whether low energy nuclear reactions could be the basis for a potentially transformative carbon-free energy source. Perhaps to Dr. Malov's delight, some of the funding is going to researchers at the place where his outspoken quest for cold fusion began, MIT. But Storms isn't optimistic about it. As far as he's concerned, cold fusion has already been proven to be real and the money should go toward expanding on the research that's already been done instead of starting from scratch. And even if these new cold fusion studies are successful, a breakthrough in the free energy field alone wouldn't get us out of the climate crisis. Not to mention it would take years to scale. Science has shown us the nature of the future. The most serious is sea level rise. You can't do anything about that. Sea level is gonna go up and pretty soon, most of Florida will be underwater. New York City will be underwater. London will be underwater. Most of the major cities will be underwater. We can tell almost precisely what's going to happen to us and we can't do anything about it. It pains him to think if cold fusion had only been taken seriously 35 years ago, maybe things would have been different. Well, the real tragedy is that nature had given us an incredible gift out of the blue gave us the way to save humanity from slow extinction. It was given on a silver platter. I mean, here you only need to develop this and all of these problems that will come to bear in the future can be reduced or eliminated. And we ignored it. And we ignored it based upon pure, unadulterated greed and self-interest. Today, only a few of the original cold fusion pioneers are left. And Rothwell worries that cold fusion will be forgotten when they're all gone. Gene once said, we're bound to succeed eventually. And I said, not necessarily. Lots of great things have been discovered and forgotten. He didn't want to hear that. He didn't want to hear that. He was much more optimistic about the future than I am. He was forever hopeful that we would succeed. Malov's daughter, Kim, thinks her dad would still be fighting for cold fusion today if he were still alive. I don't think he would have lost hope. He would have kept going. I think he really loved the excitement and just the possibilities, right? You know, the what ifs. Even though I feel like he ran up against a lot of brick walls, I think that he would still be really optimistic that something would come of this, that it would take a long time, but that something would come of this eventually. And then people would look back and say, they were right. Back in New Hampshire, Malov's mission is still alive. Christy Frazier continues to run Infinite Energy magazine. It's what Malov would have hoped for and a way for people who cared for him to protect his legacy. Christy does her best, but she says the magazine isn't the same without him. My go-to is always, what would Gene think? What would Gene do? That's the hard part because Nobody could replace Gene. His ability to communicate ideas was tremendous. And I, I don't think there's ever been 
an advocate who's been on that level. And so it has been a real loss for the field. Once a year, Christy has a ritual. She goes through the old archives of Infinite Energy magazines, and she picks out issue 56 from the summer of 2004. It's a memorial issue with Dr. Malov on the cover holding a cold fusion cell. I think about Jean often, so I like having that to look back on. As she thumbs through the magazine, she stops to read the remembrances that Malov's children, Ethan and Kim, wrote for him. Those are probably the ones that I read the most often because they are the most emotional and touching and personally meaningful. And then there's the essay that Christy wrote herself, titled, Of Flying Pigs and Starry Skies. Well, to be honest with you, um, I came up with my title first. It just, it was an immediate thing that came in my mind. And so I, I focused it to those specific things. Someone once likened the possibility of cold fusion to the likelihood that pigs will fly. And ever since, Gene has collected these bovine beauties. After he died, I just started seeing them everywhere. And I'm not really a firm believer in, you know, afterlife signs or, or things like that, but it kind of made me wonder for a little while, like he's tormenting me, <laughs> all these flying pigs in my midst now. When I look to the starry sky these days, I take comfort in knowing that the seemingly endless sky that Gene loves so much rests above us as though he is looking down to us and will help guide the way. I'm not a religious person, but you know, Jean had an affinity for the stars. And so I did look at the sky differently after that. I don't believe in a literal place called heaven, but these days I hold tight to the idea that Jean's spirit is bouncing about the nighttime sky. In the way that only Jean's positive thinking soul could, he is surely reveling in the chance to explore the universe in a new way. What's our purpose here on Earth? Simply put, we're here to seek the truth, to experience beauty. We take this with us to the very end. A single atom can light a fire that consumes the whole world. A small organism on a plant can alter the course of a civilization. That civilization might aspire to something beyond understanding. Many civilizations working together may change the universe entirely. There is meaning in the mystery of this story that can have no end. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is the final episode of Crime Wave's Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov, and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, and Graylin Brashear. Additional voice acting in this episode by Heather Schrering, 
Sean Cannon, and John Eckhouse. Original music and sound design by John Eckhouse. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotapish. Executive produced by Stephen Kanner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. And Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. Special thanks to Lionel Mojeku, Michael Makubra, and Adiel Kaplan for their reporting guidance. To Christy Frazier for making Infinite Energy's extensive archive available to us, and to Ethan Malov and Kim Woodard for their help with this podcast. We'll be back with another season of Crime Waves soon. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Waves Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. 